Good morning, everybody. Thank you for coming back. Systematic Theology, Sam didn't scare you away last week. That's good. Um, we have been talking about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit um, over the past two weeks. And today we're going to continue on with the work of the Spirit. And next week we're going to continue on with the work of the Spirit. So we have three weeks on the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, as a reminder, Daylight Savings Time is next week. So if you don't have a clock that does it automatically, uh, set it forward. It's the bad daylight savings this time. Um, we lose an hour. So anyway, yes, daylight savings time next Sunday. Uh, systematic theology, as a reminder, who can remind us what systematic theology is? Like what's a good definition of systematic theology? Nick. That's right. Nick said it's the studying of entire scripture to have a better understanding of theological issues. Um, yeah, it's really where we pick kind of one topic and then trace that topic throughout the entirety of scripture um, from Genesis to Revelation. Um, so today we're going to pick up where Sam left off um, and we're going to continue to chat about the work of the Holy Spirit in uh, regeneration um, and then we will, we will move on with um, several other topics about what the, the Holy Spirit does in his work. Um, before we do that, uh, we should pray that the Lord would bless this time. I think it's a little silly not to pray to the Spirit and ask for his guidance when you're talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. So let's pray and ask. Lord, thank you um, for your word. Thank you that you have revealed so much about um, who you are and what you do. Lord, we pray that we would be grateful for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that we'd learn. Um, more and more about this gift that you've given us, and uh, we do pray that uh, you, you would bless this time, that you'd be here, um, and that you'd work in our hearts to uh, give us knowledge and uh, bring about conviction uh, and sanctify your church. In Jesus' name, amen. So hopefully, um, these few weeks kind of serve to demystify the Holy Spirit for you, to like work against um, any notion you have that I know I personally had that the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, we kind of think of him in, in the same way that we think of like Eastern mysticism for some reason. Uh, evangelical culture can think of the Holy Spirit this way as if the Spirit is some like really strange thing that does all these weird things that we can't understand. Um, the Bible is clear about so much of what the Holy Spirit does. Uh, and so hopefully these weeks serve to kind of demystify uh, and, and maybe even show you that the Spirit is at work in a lot of ways that Maybe you didn't think about before. Um, maybe things that you just thought were like normal Christian things. The Spirit is at work um, in a lot of those things. Uh, and we're going to talk about several of those today. So Sam left off last week about uh, talking about the work of the Spirit to regenerate Christians. Uh, to bring about regenerate Christians. Um, we were talking about how it is by the Spirit that we're given new life as Christians. Uh, and are transferred from death to life in Christ. It is the Spirit who does that work. Uh, but what does this look like? You know, what are some signs that we've been given the Spirit uh, and that this work uh, has been done in our lives, this work of regeneration? Um, so this is where Sam left off last Sunday and where we're going to pick up now with a few aspects of uh, this work of Spirit-given birth. So you can see here on your, on your handout, um, the first one is intellectual enlightening. 
intellectual enlightening. Uh, and I'm going to read 1 John 2.20. If you guys want to turn there, you can. We're going to be all over Scripture, so if you've got a Bible uh, and want to follow along, get ready. 1 John 2.20 says this, But you have been anointed <clears throat> by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. So, again, in 1 John 2.20, John directly ties the anointing of the Spirit to knowledge uh, given to the Christian. So, Christians should know everything all the time. If somebody asks you what 2,465,386 times 486 is, you should know right away. If you don't, it's a bad sign. Um, that was a joke. Okay. <clears throat> what John is getting at is that we now know, we have the knowledge of the truth that we used to not recognize as the truth. So we know the truth and we celebrate the truth uh, of who Christ is uh, and who, who God is. And we celebrate that instead of refusing to know it and to hate it uh, and hating it. So in other words, one sign that we have the spirit is that we know the gospel is truth uh, and we believe it as truth and we love that truth. So intellectual enlightening is one sign that the spirit has worked in regeneration. Uh, the second sign that I, I put on the handout there is liberation of the will. So if you would turn to Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 says this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Uh, so to me, Personally, I think this is the most comforting aspect of the Spirit's work of regeneration. Um, Ephesians 2 says that we were dead and that God has made us alive uh, together with Christ. When we were dead, um, our wills and our desires were in bondage to sin uh, and incapable of following Jesus. So imagine just this image of like just pleading with a corpse to follow Jesus. You're like poking it with a stick. You're like, get up. Follow, just follow Jesus. Do it. Do the things. Uh, the corpse most likely would not respond. Um, corpses don't have a habit of responding to people. Uh, what the Spirit gives us is life and the ability to hear and a heartbeat, feet that want to respond um, to the call of Christ. Uh, this Spirit liberates our wills and frees us up so we are actually, we actually are able to follow Christ. We have the ability to follow Christ. So the Spirit liberates our will, uh, wakes us up, and gives us feet that want to follow. And then thirdly, uh, the third aspect of regeneration, cleansing and renewal. Um, so again, if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 6, that's where I'm going. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11. It 
So 1 Corinthians 6.11 says this. He, he just got done kind of giving a list of all kinds of sins. Um, and then he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So the Spirit's work of regeneration involves cleansing and renewal. Uh, the Spirit is the one who washes, who sanctifies, who justifies. When Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3 that you must be born of water and spirit, um, he's most likely referring to the new covenant promise of Ezekiel 36, where God promises to sprinkle clean water on his people uh, and that they will be clean. So complete is this work of regeneration, this work of cleansing, uh, that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Uh, and Paul, by the way, is not using the word creation here lightly at all. Just as God created in the beginning through his spirit, so he creates you, a new creation, uh, by his spirit, through his spirit. So in the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Uh, and in your new creation, God looked at you and said, let there be a Christian, and there was one. Praise God, right, for his work in our lives. Praise God for the work of the Spirit in our lives. Um, so that's what Sam meant to finish last week, but he was incapable, so I finished it. Um, just kidding. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> that's good. Um, so those are kind of some of the aspects of the results of regeneration in the believer's life. Um, and this week we're going to continue to talk about the work of the Spirit. Um, so today we're going to see, you can see on your handout, we're going to cover conviction, uh, union with Christ, sanctification, intercession, assurance, and kind of what does that mean in the life of the church. Um, so these are, these are more works of the Spirit, things that he does. Um, so first of all, conviction. Uh, and if you want to turn to John 16, uh, and apologies on the handouts, there are places that I just like scripture vomited on here. Um, and what, what I'm hoping you can do is as I reference them, you can like underline them and go back to them uh, if one of them like stands out to you um, because we're not going to be able to read all of these scripture references, so that's my bad. Um, John 16, verse 7 through 11. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. It's the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So Jesus claims it's actually better for him to leave, uh, for us, that we might have the Spirit. And the Spirit will convict the world when he gets here. So part of the Spirit's work is conviction. <clears throat> I think to better understand what conviction is, we should probably think about what, what conviction isn't um, before we get into this. So... First, conviction is not just feeling guilty or shameful about sin. Um, that's not the type of conviction that the Spirit brings, or at least that's not the fullness of the type of uh, conviction the Spirit brings. 
almost everyone uh, experiences these feelings. Like if you were to go out and kill somebody and you felt nothing about it, you felt no guilt, no shame, we wouldn't just say, well, that you're not a Christian. We would say you're a sociopath. Like it's <laughs> everybody feels some guilt or shame over evil things that they do. Um, so conviction, this conviction that the Spirit's bringing is not just this feeling of guilt. It's not simply that. Um, it's also not just a sense of worry about divine punishment or this anxiousness about divine punishment. Weirdly, uh, these feelings are also pretty common uh, in the hearts of non-Christians. Um, and thirdly, conviction of sin is not merely knowledge of what's right and wrong. It's not simply knowing what you should versus shouldn't do. Um, it's not just agreeing with Scripture's teaching about sin, like mentally agreeing. Um, so people may read the Bible and know that the wages of sin is death, as Romans 6.23 says, and yet continue to live in sin. Um, so they understand the consequences. They get that. They get what's right and wrong. But they have no spirit-given conviction uh, because they continue to live in sin. So if all that you know is this is like a feeling of guilt or anxiety about uh, punishment or an academic understanding of right and wrong, um, you may have never known the true conviction that the Spirit brings um, on his people that Scripture talks about. So what is it? We know what it's not, um, but what is it? The, the Greek word for convict here, coming from somebody who doesn't speak Greek, um, in the New Testament means to convince someone of the truth, to reprove, to accuse, refute, or cross-examine a witness. So that describes the work that the Spirit does to bring about conviction of sin. So this is specifically for Nick Sigalakis. The Spirit acts as a prosecuting attorney, law, who exposes evil, reproves evildoers, and convinces us that we need a Savior. The Spirit acts as a prosecuting attorney who exposes evil, reproves evildoers, and convinces us that we need a Savior. We see this so clearly um, just following Pentecost in Acts 2, um, which we're going to get more into this week and next week. Um, so in Acts 2, 37 and 38, it says this. Now when they heard this, the crowd heard um, Peter's message. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit, just after Pentecost, does this work of conviction to these men, uh, of their wrongdoing, and we know it's genuine conviction because they know they need to change something. Um, they ask, they need a savior, they need help, uh, they need to take action to combat this sin. Um, this should encourage us in our evangelism. This should encourage us immensely in our evangelism. We can't make other people feel convicted over their sin. That's not our job. It's not our job to do that. It's the Spirit's job. We should speak the truth in love to one another. We should call ourselves uh, and non-Christians to repent. We should certainly contextualize, um, but we aren't in control of the results of our words. Um, the Spirit is. We need to trust God in prayer because he's the one who brings conviction by his Spirit. So this is played out um, in Scripture in 2 Timothy 2, 24-25, which all of these things I'm referencing are on your handout. Um, 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25 says this. 
uh, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So who grants repentance according to this verse, right? It's clear that the Lord grants repentance. It's not the Lord's servant who does that. Uh, it is the Lord. So we're simply the messenger. We bring God's word when we evangelize to people, and we trust that it's his work to change hearts. Uh, it's not our work to do so. And again, this should comfort us immensely because it's his work. He can save anybody um, that he wants to. Uh, nobody is beyond his reach. So we don't have to try to manipulate people into feeling spirit-given conviction as if we even could manipulate people into feeling spirit-given conviction. Um, bringing the lights down low, sleep-depriving children at a summer camp so they're emotionally fragile. Um, that one's half a joke. Pumping in the fog in an auditorium because for some reason we associate fog with spiritual things. Saying just the right jujitsu phrase of words to like cut to the heart of somebody and break down their defenses. Um, we don't have to manipulate at all. So we simply have to preach the gospel plainly and trust that the Lord convicts. Uh, that doesn't mean we shouldn't contextualize. We should contextualize, but we can do that without watering down the gospel. Um, we don't want to water something water the gospel down and call it contextualization. So true conviction um, is the influence of the Holy Spirit that leads someone to know that they're guilty and that they deserve judgment. Uh, it leaves someone asking, like those in Acts 2 after Pentecost, it, leave, it should leave you asking, what shall I do? What can I do? Uh, and then the Spirit doesn't leave someone there, but it points them to Christ as a substitute. He points them to Christ as a substitute. The Spirit says, you can do nothing, but Christ did everything for you. Um, and in all of this, the Spirit works by his sword. He cuts to our hearts by his sword, which Ephesians six seventeen tells us is the word of God. So that word is what we should use to convict sinners. It's that word that's going to cut to the heart uh, and convict, because it's by that word that the Spirit brings conviction. Any comments or questions on the Spirit's work of conviction before we move into union with Christ? So let's move into uh, the Spirit's work in uniting us to Christ. This is another huge blessing we get from the Spirit, um, not just our conviction, but also our union with Christ. Uh, John 14, 20 is kind of the, the verse I put um, as a header over this. John 14, 20. Um, Jesus says this, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. The work of the Spirit is to bring us into union with Christ. Um, no longer does Christ merely dwell among us, uh, walk among us, as he did with the disciples, but he dwells in us through the Spirit. Um, this is why it's a little silly to think, and I know I've had this thought before, like, man, I just wish I could have been around when Jesus was alive. And I could have seen him walking around. Um, and I, I definitely, you know, I would have known him better. It would have been a lot better if I could, if he would be sitting in our church. Um, 
I know I've thought things like that before, but as we read earlier, Jesus himself actually says it's better that he leaves, that the Spirit might come. So if we trust his word, it's, it's way better that he's in us um, now than that he would simply be among us in the person of Christ. Um, so this is huge. It's a central role of the Spirit to reveal Christ to his people and then to unite us to him. Um, what phrase does Paul use to describe Christians in, over and over and over again in his epistles? Does anybody know what phrase I'm talking about? What phrase does Paul use to describe Christians in, over and over and over again? Yes, in, in Christ. Uh, he says this 160 times in his writings. So our union with Christ by the power of the Spirit is a huge deal. It's huge. In the New Testament, we find literally hundreds of references to the believer's union with Christ. Um, again, apologies for the outline. I just put on a ton of references there. Uh, in this section. So I'm going to just kind of walk through what each of these says, and we're not going to read every single verse, but I'm going to just kind of give the topic of each of these as we go through, and I'm hoping you can kind of underline or circle or whatever if you want to go back and and look at any of these. Um, Okay, so I'm going to go in the order there on your outline. Um, Believers are created in Christ. That's Ephesians 2.10. We're created in Christ. Crucified with Christ. Galatians 2.20. So notice, too, just all the union language with Christ in these, in these verses. Buried with Christ, Colossians 2.12. Baptized into Christ and his death, Romans 6.3. United with Christ in his resurrection, Romans 6.5. Seated with him in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2.6. Christ is formed in believers, Galatians 4.19. And dwells in our hearts, Ephesians 3, 17. The church is the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 6, 15, and 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Christ is in us, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. We are in him, 1 Corinthians 1, 30. The church is one flesh with Christ, Ephesians 5, 31 to 32. Believers gain Christ and are found in him, Philippians 3, 8 and 9. Um, furthermore, in Christ we are justified, Romans 8, 1. In Christ we are glorified, Romans 8, 30. We are sanctified, 1 Corinthians 1, 2. In Christ we are called, 1 Corinthians 1, 9. In Christ we are made alive, Ephesians 2, 5. In Christ we are created anew, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. We are adopted in Christ, Galatians 3, 26. And we are elected, Ephesians 1, 4 to 5. Um, so again, a lot of scripture. Um, but hopefully you can see just the importance and the overwhelming emphasis of the union with Christ uh, that we have by the Spirit. By the way, all of those references don't even include the Gospels um, or the letters of John. So it's easy to see that union with Christ is a fundamental conviction of the apostles. This is a big deal. Um, But how does this union with Christ thing even work? How can it even be possible that we could be united to Christ? Um, The answer to that is is just the gospel. You know, in Isaiah 59.2, we find out that our sin has made a separation between us and God. Uh, There is no hope if we stand in that position before God. 
um, and we don't come to know Christ. But Christ lived the perfect life that we failed to live. The first Adam failed, and every descendant, including us, has failed after him. Uh, But the second Adam, Jesus Christ, succeeded. He pleased the Father in every way uh, and was without sin. He was not separated by sin from the Father. He died a death uh, he didn't deserve. He became a substitute sacrifice to atone for our sins, for the sins of others. Um, What we need is to receive the benefits of Christ's perfect life and to receive the benefits of his substitutionary death. How do we do this? We must be united with Christ. Uh, And this union with Christ happens by the mechanism of faith. Um, So Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Um, And 1 Corinthians 12.13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. In other words, when we repent of our sin and trust in Christ, the Spirit unites us to Christ by faith. The Spirit applies what the Son accomplished. So the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit then applies that accomplishment. The Spirit applies what the Son accomplished. We are no longer separated from God because of sin if we're in Christ. Instead, we are united to Christ, which means we receive all the benefits of his death and his resurrection. Amazingly, this means that God sees us as he sees his Son with whom we are clothed, according to Galatians 3.27. So if you're in Christ, there is a, there's a sense in which God looks at you and says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That should astound us and cause us to worship him uh, and walk in obedience. I mean, that should really blow us away. Uh, any comments or questions on union with Christ? This leads well into into the third point. Um, So we just talked about how the Spirit unites us to Christ, makes us justified before the Father on account of that union. But not only does he justify through that union, the Spirit also brings us to obey and and work out holiness in our own lives, um, which is called sanctification, which is the third point there on your, actually the fourth point on your handout. Um, So sanctification is this process of becoming more like Christ, uh, becoming holier, and uh, looking more like Christ. So the Holy Spirit not only regenerates us and unites us to Christ, but he also works to transform us into the likeness of Christ. The process of that transforming work is called sanctification. Um, If you want to think of it this way, it might be helpful. Regeneration refers to birth, and sanctification refers to growth. Um, So if regeneration is like birth, sanctification is like growth. Uh, here is a, uh, here's a few examples of how sanctification may have been played out in your own life. Um, some, some things you can point to and say, like, okay, maybe this is an example of me being sanctified. So let's say before you met Christ, you were just really greedy, and you were, like, hoarding all the money that you could have, um, just taking as much as you could. And once you meet Christ, uh, your conscience gets kind of pricked, um, and you start to just give some money away to others. That would be something that we could point to and say, well, this is sanctification. Another example, suppose you're living with and sleeping with your girlfriend, um, but you meet Christ, you come to know him, and you get the courage to move out of that situation. 
That's something you could point to and say, this is sanctification. Um, or suppose you've always struggled with gossip. You just loved hearing people's dirty laundry um, and telling it to others. But after coming to know the Lord uh, more, you catch yourself before you do it. And you're not perfect, but you sometimes stop yourself. Uh, you have the ability to stop yourself um, in a way that's very different than before you knew the Lord. These are all things we could point to and say, like, this is sanctification, this is growth. Um, our trajectory is like looking more like Christ. Um, so sanctification is like a home renovation where your soul is the home being renovated. Um, it takes a long time. Like home renovation, it takes a long time. It's expensive. It hurts. You're not always even sure progress is happening because the walls are getting torn up. The contractors are noisy. But the end result is a much better home. Um, and it's worth a little mess to have a much better home. So this moral renovation of our souls, this sanctification, is a work of the Holy Spirit. Um, so we read this earlier, but it's worth bringing up again, and I put it on your handout. Um, 1 Corinthians 6.11, again, after Paul lists all these sins, he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. By the Spirit, we're washed, sanctified, and justified. Um, 2 Peter 1.3 says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Whose divine power grants us these things? Our own? No. It's his divine power that grants us godliness and growth in it. Um, but in case you're tempted to think you can just kick back and do nothing and let the Spirit sanctify you, and be lazy. Uh, God actually intends for you to help in the contract work that he's doing uh, on your own house renovation. It's like you're, you've hired contractors to do it, and you're going to join in and help them. Um, the Spirit of God dwells in us and works and empowers us to live up to our responsibilities. So when Peter says that we have all we need for life and godliness, um, it doesn't mean we do nothing. In fact, two verses later, so I just referenced 2 Peter 1.3, but two verses later, Peter says in 2 Peter 1.5, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Uh, in other words, for this reason, that God has granted us all things that we need by his Spirit, we then make every effort to supplement our faith with virtue. Um, and the result of God's power working powerfully through us, um, through his sanctifying Spirit, is a fruit-filled life. So what comes out of this is you bear fruit. Uh, make no mistake about that. If you're bearing no fruit, you likely don't know the Spirit. The Spirit empowers us to bear fruit, and we bear the fruit of the Spirit. Great job. Uh, there's some terrifying imagery in the New Testament about not bearing fruit. It's all very negative. Um, it's important to know that if you know the Spirit, you will bear His fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. Um, which is in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. <clears throat> Whoa. Many of us, you know, probably know this list by heart, but really try to think through that this is the fruit that you should be bearing uh, if you know the Spirit. So think through even your own life, maybe this afternoon. Which of these things are you growing in? Um, which of these things need work? Uh, but where are you seeing the fruit of the Spirit bearing in your own life, or are you? be a good exercise to do. 
Galatians 5, 22 to 23 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So are you growing in these things by the power of the Spirit? Can you point to things in your own life where you're growing in these aspects, where you're bearing fruit? Um, then if you can, you're being sanctified and you should praise God um, for the work that he's doing in your life. Any comments or questions about sanctification before we move into intercession? Cool. So we've talked about <clears throat> two huge roles of the Spirit, convicting us about who Christ is and uniting us to him, right? Two huge roles. But we've talked about a huge goal of the Spirit, remaking us into the image of Christ in sanctification. Uh, let's move now to intercession. So this is another work of the Spirit in our lives, um, intercession on our behalf in prayer. Uh, to me, this is a huge comfort, um, and we'll talk about why as we, as we dig into this. So we know that prayer is an expression of our adoration, it's an expression of our worship, um, as well as just an expression of our need before God. We need God to act in so many ways in our lives that we, we don't have control over, but he does. Um, first, it's, it's good to know that it's by the Spirit we even know to call Jesus Lord uh, and to call God our Father. So if you would turn to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, um, says this. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So, in case you were unaware, this is not talking about these literal words. Um, you could force somebody at gunpoint to say Jesus is Lord. Um, doesn't mean that they believe it. Uh, anybody can say these words. It's talking about actually coming to the understanding, knowing the knowledge that Jesus actually is Lord. Um, that is a gift of the Spirit, to know that Jesus is Lord. Likewise, knowing that God is Father is a gift of the Spirit. Um, Galatians 4, 6 tells us this. It says, because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Um, so it's the Spirit at work in revealing to us Jesus as Lord and God as Father. So if you know those things, it's by the Spirit that you know them. So when Paul calls us to pray in the Spirit, as he does in Ephesians 6, um, he's not instructing us to pray unintelligibly or pray in a, in a wild manner, but rather to pray in accordance with the rest of the Spirit's work, recognizing Jesus as Lord and God as Father and being guided by the Spirit's work in inspired Scripture. That's what Paul is getting at in Ephesians 6. Praying in the Spirit is committing oneself to holding on to the promises of God until they take effect. Praying in the Spirit is committing oneself to holding on to the promises of God until they take effect. At another level, as we already mentioned, prayer is an expression of our weakness and our need. Um, this is where the comfort of this section really kicks in for me. Um, and I put Romans 8.26 there on your outline. Um, 
Romans 8.26 says this. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Um, how are we portrayed in Romans 8.26? Yes, <laughs> yes, weak. Um, so weak, in fact, that we can't even make a coherent prayer half the time. Uh, it becomes just a groan. So in, in this context, you know, recognizing that 826 is talking about us being weak, um, it's not talking about speaking in tongues or ecstatic utterances here. That's not what this passage is getting at. Um, but it's about something we've all experienced, just absolute weakness and need before the Father, um, where we're too weak to even express our need in a manner that makes any sense. Um, the great grace of the Spirit's ministry here is that when we're too weak to speak, the Spirit speaks for us to the Father. When human words aren't enough to express our anguish or fear or sorrow, the Spirit groans on our behalf with groans that words cannot express to the Father. In other words, if you don't know how to express how you feel to the Lord, because of the Spirit, God knows exactly how you feel, um, even if you can't tell him how you feel. He knows it better than you know it um, by the Spirit, and he knows better than you do how to care for you in your weakness. You can trust that the Lord hears your prayers, um, even when you can't form the words that you want to express to him. Uh, and you can trust that he knows best how to respond to those prayers. So praise God for the Spirit who translates our weakness and our groanings to the Father uh, in a way that makes sense and expresses um, our position before the Father. How glorious is this? When we don't know what we should be asking God for, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Um, those times that we're at a loss for words, when we're confused and don't know where to turn, we can turn to God and know that the Spirit intercedes in accordance with God's will. So the Spirit prays for us not only in our weakness, but also in our ignorance, um, leading us into the will of God. Any comments or questions on intercession? Okay. So before we talk about how the Holy Spirit um, works in the life of the church, let's talk about uh, assurance in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings assurance that we belong to God. Um, Romans 8.16 is the verse I put on there. Romans 8.16 says this, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So notice, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Um, this is the highest form of Christian assurance, if you're in Christ. You can have no greater assurance um, that you're a Christian than on those occasions that the Spirit testifies to you uh, and about you that you belong to God. The Spirit testifies specifically in that verse that we are God's children. Um, not just his people, but his children. 
if you think of a, a father-son relationship, maybe you have a son, um, maybe you have a 17-pound dog like me. Um, but you know in a good father-son relationship, the son generally knows that the father loves him. Like generally speaking, in a good relationship, the son generally knows that the father loves him. He may not feel like it always, especially like when he's being disciplined or something like that, but he generally knows that the father loves him. So if you picture kind of a father and a young son walking hand in hand through Disney World or some other terrible place created to take all your money, um, just kidding. If you, but if you think about a father and a young son walking hand in hand um, through a place, the son knows that the father loves him. But if the father were to stoop down, and you know he's holding his hand, but he stoops down and picks him up and gives him a huge hug, um, the son experiences his love in a different way in that moment, um, in a way that's going to be particularly comforting. So in those moments, like the son's not even going to question for a second if the father loves him. And I, I think it, it is that way with assurance in our own lives. There are seasons where the Spirit manifests God's love to us in a way that's just particularly comforting, uh, in a special way, and we feel like a beloved child um, so clearly. But what's great about Christian assurance, and what should be comforting here, is that just like a child's assurance of his parents' love, uh, it's not actually even based on how we feel at any given moment. Um, so the kid might feel like their dad hates them, but the truth may be the opposite of that. Um, so it is with us as well. We don't have assurance uh, before the Father because we feel like we do. No, we have assurance because of tangible, unchanging things. Um, God's promises in Scripture, the finished work of Christ on the cross, the evidence of God's work within us, um, etc. So hopefully you don't hear this and get discouraged if you struggle with um, assurance of salvation. There are times when the Spirit should comfort you, definitely, um, but you may have long seasons of not feeling like you're loved um, by God or, or one of his children. Uh, and I'd encourage you, if, if that describes you, to think through some of those objective questions that you can point to and say, okay, I can't have assurance even if I don't feel like it. So some of these questions. Has God promised in Scripture that he'll complete the good work he began in me if I'm a Christian? Absolutely, yes. Another, another great question to ask yourself. Was Christ's sacrifice on the cross finished and sufficient before the Father? The answer is absolutely yes, right? Another question. Is there evidence of God's work in my own life, sanctifying me and making me more like Christ? Hopefully the answer is yes, right? And these are all things you can point to and hold on to when you might not feel that assurance like you want to. Um, it may even be a good sign that you struggle with assurance of salvation if you do. A lot of like nominal Christians don't struggle at all with um, assurance of salvation. So it may be a good thing that you even struggle with it. There may be times in a believer's life where we're not experientially aware of the Spirit's presence, but the Lord has promised never to leave us or to forsake us, uh, and he will not take his Spirit from his children. So this is really good news for anybody um, who struggles with assurance, and the Spirit does. Part of his work is giving us assurance. Any comments or questions on that before we um, wrap up by just talking about the Holy Spirit's work in the life of the church? Any comments or questions on assurance? One day I'm going to get one comment. Let's go. It's today.
Yep, absolutely. So just for the podcast's sake, uh, Frank was noting that Nancy struggled with assurance from time to time. Uh, but it is a good sign that you even wrestle with it um, because a lot of non-Christians who think they're Christians don't at all struggle with it. Um, so it can be a really good thing if you struggle with assurance. That's good. Okay, let's wrap up um, just talking about the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. What is, what's the work of the Spirit in the church? There's a lot we could go into here. It wouldn't be UBC if we didn't apply some of this to the context of the whole church. Um, but it's not, it's not at all a stretch. Um, this is very true. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. It's all over Scripture. Um, it's not just for individuals. It's also for entire churches, the work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit works to build up uh, Christ's church. In a couple ways I put on your handout here. Uh, first, inspiration of Scripture. So I'm going to read 2 Peter 1, 21. Second Peter 1, 21 uh, says this, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The inspired scripture um, is definitely here to build up us as individuals, no doubt. Um, but it's also here to build up the church, right? The whole church submits to scripture as its highest authority. Um, and we can praise God that the Spirit-inspired scripture as something meant to build up our entire church. And it's something our entire church has to submit to. Um, and we agree to that when we you know, become members here, uh, that this is our final rule. Um, and we're all on the same page about that. And it builds up our entire church. Um, second, the Spirit works in raising up leaders for the church. So Acts 20, uh, verse 28 says this, Keep watch over yourselves, and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So he's talking to the pastors, the elders. Be shepherds of the church, which he bought with his own blood. The Spirit is actually the one who raises up elders and pastors um, to lead his people and help explain the scriptures that the Spirit inspired. So we should be thankful to the Holy Spirit for raising up pastors uh, and for giving them wisdom in interpreting the scriptures to us. And I think if you're an elder in the room, I think you're supposed to feel a little bit of pressure here as well. Um, you were raised up by the Holy Spirit to do this work. Um, Christ bought the church with his own blood. So don't squander that or waste that um, if you're an elder. And then thirdly, strengthening and encouraging the church. Another work of the Spirit in the church is strengthening and encouraging. So Acts 9.31 says this, the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. So friends, if you're encouraged about what's happening at UBC, if we're being led well by those in authority, um, if we're being encouraged by the spiritual growth that we're seeing, we have an obligation to give God praise, um, that he's the praise that he's due for this. Uh, he is the reason we have any strength or encouragement as a church. His spirit does this work. So again, the spirit is certainly at work individually, um, but he's also at work corporately in the life of the church. Any questions or comments about uh, the Holy Spirit in the life of the church before we kind of wrap things up? I'm pretty happy I got one comment, so... I'll wrap it up.
you know, as I was preparing this week, um, I was just very thankful for how clear Scripture makes the work of the Spirit. Um, in many cases, we don't have to guess or wonder how the Spirit works. Uh, I know in my own life, as I've studied these the past few weeks, the work of the Spirit has been cleared up um, for me, and a lot of my misunderstandings have been cleared up by Scripture, uh, and I'm praying that the same is true for all of you. Again, as we said in the beginning, I think a lot of what these weeks have done for me is just to serve to demystify the work of the Spirit. Um, for some reason, when we hear Holy Spirit, you know, even as a Christian culture, we can start to think in uh, terms, like I said earlier, like Eastern mysticism. Um, we expect the Spirit to do the unexpected. You know, uh, we, we expect a lot of weird things out of the Spirit. Um, but Scripture reveals a very different view of this Holy Spirit. Uh, his work is knowable. He works in some wonderful ways that you may just not have recognized as his work um, before now. So the few we talked about today, conviction, union with Christ, sanctification, intercession, and assurance, uh, and then the spirit and the life of the church. So the scripture is abundantly clear that um, the spirit is involved in things that you might just consider like normal things in the Christian life, um, and we should be giving him the praise he's due for those things. Next week, we're going to continue on and just wrap up the work of the Spirit, uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about what you might think we'd talk about when we said we were going to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, so things like baptism in the Holy Spirit. What is that? Being filled with the Spirit, um, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, um, and, and more things than that as well. So that's, that's how we'll wrap this, uh, this section up. But again, I'm praying these past few weeks have really just magnified the Holy Spirit in your life. Um, as a person who maybe is more active in the Trinity than you might think. Um, he does some wonderful things that we take for granted, um, and I hope that we can, as a church even, just attribute those things to him and give him praise for those things uh, moving forward. So praise God, he's given us the scriptures to know him better uh, and to worship him in truth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Spirit um, and all the ways that he's at work, individually and corporately. Um, Lord, we do pray that we would recognize um, those times that we feel conviction or we feel like we're being sanctified uh, or any of these ways that we'd recognize the Spirit's work for what it is and we'd give you praise. Um, thank you for how clear you've made it in Scripture and uh, we pray that we'd submit to it and uh, grow in holiness individually and grow in holiness as a church that our whole church might look more like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.